Judas is the ultimate tragic figure in all of human history who, who trades the riches of knowing the King of Kings, the riches of an eternal blissful relationship with the living God. He exchanged that, exchanges that for 30 shekels of silver, pieces of silver, and for the fleeting approval of man, for the things of this world. It's tragic, face to face with Jesus, and yet he rejects him. The son of perdition. Judas decides to lift up his heel against the Lord as we continue with life's meaning and purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. Judas Iscariot was one of the more complicated figures among the twelve disciples. He was a member of the Zealots, who desired to overthrow the Roman government, and he was a thief, known for pilfering the money purse he was responsible to oversee as treasurer. Still, Judas was chosen to be one of the twelve, and was dearly loved by Christ, which made the betrayal that much more painful. As we will hear in our lesson for this week, Judas had a choice, and he chose his own interests over the interests of his friends. Before we turn it over to Father Board, we would like to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you have enjoyed what you're hearing from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating and review. Your positive feedback will help us reach more people with this podcast. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Now, Peter still isn't, doesn't have a full grasp, as I'm sure the other disciples, of the spiritual significance of this. We know that because what, how does he respond? He says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So what Jesus is saying is that you don't need your whole body washed at this point. That's not the point. The point is that you are clean now because of your relationship with me. I'm the one who sanctifies you. I'm the one, sanctify means make holy. I'm the one who forgives you. But there's one here who is not clean. Now who's the one who's not clean? Judas. Because Judas has not opened his heart to the Lord. Judas is still stuck in his sin. Judas is still stuck in serving self, his will, not God's will. And so there's no hope for him at this point. And we'll see that that hope quickly is um, extinguished. Now Jesus will further elaborate so that there will be understanding. Verse 11. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Something also to, men, uh, to talk about when it comes to Judas. Not only was Judas allowing himself to be deceived by Satan, but remember, Satan means adversary. And when we talk about the fall of man and we talk about the fall of the angels, we're always talking about rebellion. And so Judas represents rebellion against God, God's will, God's ways. 
And so there is this conflict that is being highlighted, the bigger conflict between Satan and God, the bigger conflict between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of man in the world, but it's condensed now in this conflict between Judas and Jesus. Not all of you are clean. Verse 12, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. The word that we translate example can also be translated pattern. In other words, it's not just a one-shot example, but it's a pattern for living. And no, it is not something that has to be done every Sunday. I think there are some groups that maybe do that. Or every year. Some churches do that on Monday, Thursday, and do the foot washing. There's nothing wrong with that. But please, don't be a church, and there are probably some churches that do this, make it mandatory. One of their ordinances. If you're a member of this church, you've got to do that. That's not the point. That's the, that's the example. And that's a good example. It's a great example. But it points us to the deeper spiritual reality that life following Jesus, kingdom living, is always being humble at heart. Always knocking down self. Not that you think you're a miserable wretch, but you're not thinking about you first. You're thinking about others. Think about God first and His perspective rather than your own. You're keeping things in the right perspective. You're keeping your priorities straight. That's the example He's giving, the pattern He's giving to His disciples and to us. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You see, it isn't just knowing them. The blessing comes in doing them. Now, I want you to think about something when it comes to the church. The church is susceptible to the things of the world. We deal with the same stuff. Even just because you're saved, just because you're redeemed, doesn't mean you're not still sinning and have an issue with sin. And you're not going to be selfish or self-oriented or self-seeking. We still have that problem in the church, right? Otherwise, if, if that wasn't a problem, then our churches would be perfect, right? Now, I want you to think of the four C's of pride that are not true if one is humble. The four C's of pride would be condescending, looking down on someone else. That, we don't want to look down on someone else. The second C would be critical. When people are overly critical, what are they doing? They're becoming the judge. They're saying that their way is superior. They're saying that that person is, what's their problem? We should not have a spirit of criticism. Now, there's nothing wrong with constructively saying these are some things, you know, and, but what I'm talking about criticism is when people 
are just very negative. And then they spread that negativity with other people. That's a critical spirit. It is not of God. It results from pride, self. So condescending, looking down on others, having a critical spirit, and then comparing ourselves to other people. Now that's kind of can be relating to condescension. But comparing ourselves to other people can also lead us in a reverse of thinking that we're no good because that person looks better or does things better and then it just keeps us in. You can go both ways. And then certainly the competitive spirit when we're competing against one another for attention, for money, all of that kind of thing. None of that is kingdom living, but it all stems from pride. So the self always has to be not so much put down, but we, we, we just have to have it step aside and focus on God and other people and how can we make the lives of others better. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. He didn't say what most religions teach, and that is don't do to others what you would have them not do to you. We know that that is the predominant thinking of the world when it comes to the golden rule because otherwise you would have the differences in tribes and people groups easily bridged. If people were doing to others what they would have others do to you, that's how you would bridge the gap. But if you're just, I'm not going to do anything, they don't bother me, I'm not going to bother them, then what happens? We stay in our own little groups and nothing improves and then eventually we fight each other that's the history of the world but when jesus says do unto others as you would have others do unto you he's basically saying love others as you would have them love you and that means serve others as you would have others serve you and i don't know about you but i like when i'm served at a restaurant i like when i go to a hotel and i have clean sheets and a fixed bed i love to be served don't you no. But what Jesus calls us to do is about serving other people. Don't just be served, but go and serve. And then he says you'll be blessed in doing so. There's a blessing. God's going to bless you. Just does. Let's continue now. Verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it, it is that the Scripture may be filled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's, Jesus is quoting Psalm 49. It's a reference to when David felt betrayed by one of his close confidants. In fact, it was during the revolt or the rebellion of Absalom against David and uh, we see that Jesus basically is quoting the psalm to highlight the prophecy that, remember, the Old Testament contains many prophecies that had an initial fulfillment or initial reference, but then were foreshadows of Christ. And so if you'll see in, your, in the notes I have with you, Ahithophel, was David's counselor and diplomatic advisor, and he abandoned David during Absalom's rebellion. So that was a type. Judas is abandoning Jesus. It's a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against God's will and plan. 
And Jesus alludes to this. He is disturbed. We're going to find that later it says that He's troubled. But notice then He says in verse 19, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur you may believe that I am He. Another example, another sign. Jesus knowing the future, being able to tell the future so that later after it happens, the disciples can say, oh yeah, He did say that. He did warn us of that. He already knew. Only God knows the future. Satan, by the way, does not know the future. He can know some things, but he doesn't know the specifics. Only God knows the future. Only God is outside of time and space. Satan is not outside of time and space. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. You can see the pattern. Jesus is basically saying that if you receive me, you're receiving God. And if someone in this world receives you, you bear the name of Christ and you're a Christian and you're coming in Christ's name and you're not a false Christian, you're a true believer, then when they receive you, that's the same as receiving Christ. That's why when these people say, oh, I don't have anything to do with the church, they're missing the whole point, aren't they? If you don't have anything to do with church, then what are you going to do with? Just yourself? Well, that's totally contrary to the Gospel. There's nothing wrong with the church. If you reject the church, you're ultimately rejecting the Lord of the church. A couple other things I do want to mention that I kind of missed, glossed over. Notice how Peter said, you can't do that, Lord. It's beneath you. Heaven forbid, really. It's the same attitude that Jews and Muslims have concerning our belief in Jesus Christ as God. They think it's ridiculous that God would become a man and walk the earth. I talked about this a few weeks ago. But it's the same thinking. It was ridiculous for Peter and his disciples. They were Jews. They were having a hard enough time fully understanding that Jesus was God in the flesh. They probably couldn't, they were going probably back and forth. It wasn't until after the resurrection and Jesus taught further and helped them sh and showed them through the scriptures now that he had completed his work that they came to full understanding and appreciation that Jesus is God in the flesh. But that's another example. And the radical nature of who Jesus is. It's, it's, it's truly uh, remarkable. And then the second thing just left me, so we'll continue. All right, Jesus predicts his betrayal. Verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. The same Greek word there that we translate troubled is the same one that is used before Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. Jesus was troubled when he saw how death wreaks havoc in the human experience. He was troubled when he saw the pain of Lazarus' loss being felt among those around him. And in the same way, Jesus is troubled. He's, he's disturbed, greatly disturbed at the betrayal, at the rejection by Judas of his Lord. I mean, Judas is the ultimate tragic figure in all of human history who, who trades the riches of knowing the King of Kings, the riches of an eternal, blissful relationship with the living God. He exchanged that, exchanges that for 30 shekels of silver, or pieces of silver, and for the fleeting approval of man. 
for the things of this world. It's tragic. Face to face with Jesus, and yet he rejects him. So Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. I'm sure at this point the disciples are now starting to get a little freaked out. They know that Jesus, that the authorities want to arrest Jesus. They're meeting in secret. It's another reason why there wouldn't be any servants around to wash the feet. It's a secret meeting. There's that pressure. And then you've got the external oppression, but now you have someone in their midst that's going to potentially call them out. Their future now is very uncertain. And so then we read, verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. That would be the Apostle John. And Simon Peter gestured to him, John, and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, again, he's only speaking to John now. That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Now during a meal, if the host, the host would often take, and remember the bread was not like our wonder bread. It was the flat wheat bread, like the pita bread. You know, dip it in and, 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 and take chunks of meat and vegetables and all that with it. And so if the host would take a piece and dip it and give it to someone, that was an example of showing your affection for that person. That was actually a, a symbol of honor. And it also suggests that Judas was sitting close to Jesus. So why is that significant? Two reasons. Jesus is giving Judas a last chance. A last chance to say yes, Lord, and no to what he wants to do. So that's the first reason. The second, it's to give the impression to the rest of the disciples that Judas is not the one. I mean, not to kind of bring attention to Judas. Only John knew, and John couldn't mention it to Peter at that time because it would cause a commotion. And so here Jesus gives the bread to Judas, and we read that So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan entered into him. So there was that decision. The final yes. And then Satan possessed him. He was now at the point of no return. And then notice what it says. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The word that we translate do quickly can be translated immediately. It's basically as fast as you can. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Immediately, that's where it says as as fast as possible. Jesus did not say what you do, do as fast as possible. He said do quickly. Go, get out. We're going to see why Jesus wanted Judas out of there in a moment. But right here it says, so after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately 
And notice what John writes. He says, and it was night. Now that was true, historically true, and John is noted for his historical detail, but that's not why he emphasized, and it was night. He was emphasizing that this was a dark time. Because remember, throughout John's Gospel, Jesus uses the metaphor of light versus darkness. Light is the goodness of God. Light represents God. The darkness represents evil. In fact, we find in Luke, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 22, verse 53, right when he's about to be arrested after Judas's betrayal, Jesus says to Judas, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And so we have the climax of Judas's rejection of the Lord. And now that Judas leaves, Jesus is able to go into his final teaching that highlights what it means to be in an intimate personal relationship with the living God. And so his final discourse begins. And this is one example where the chapter beginnings are off. Because chapter 13, as you note, continues, but it's now a different, it's in a different context. Judas is no longer present. And so next week we will look in detail. So you see where it says in 31, Therefore when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So even though this is kind of a negative thing, big time, it's all part of the plan of God that God is going to use this betrayal for his good. And ultimately through the suffering and death of Jesus, God's going to be glorified and a lot of good's going to result. That's why we call it Good Friday. And then Jesus continues, we'll see next week. And how, look what he says, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so the emphasis of his final discourse is really threefold. Well, you could probably say it's more than that, but just highlight a few things. He speaks of the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for us. So it's articulating that love and how that flows from that eternal relationship with God. He then talks a lot about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Spirit in our lives, bringing everything that's real in Christ to us experientially. And then he uh, talks about that he has to go to the Father, and but before he does that, he prays for the disciples and what we're to be about as his body, especially once he leaves and he ascends into heaven. So those are going to be the themes of the next four chapters and we'll only get a chance to look at uh, the first chapter, chapter 14, next week. One final passage I want us to look at that kind of parallels what we read tonight and saw in the example of Jesus and washing the disciples' feet and how that represents service and selflessness. Later on, Paul wrote to uh, the Philippian church in one of the most powerful passages for all of us, do nothing from selfishness or empty or vain conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That literally means, it doesn't mean intellectually grasped, it means held on to, keeping it to himself. No, he gave it up. 
emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus will later say in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this than one who lays down his life for his friends. So if in John 13, Jesus shows us what true love is, and that it is selfless and humble in attitude and demonstrating serving action, he'll then continue and talk about true love and showing that true love is sacrificial, true love is forgiving, true love endures. And so we'll see that as well. Well, let's uh, close in prayer and prepare now for uh, Holy Communion. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, who you are and that you are the Lord of heaven and earth and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, continue to guide and direct us, give us wisdom, help us to accomplish the things you've called us to do and to be, and help us to maintain a selfless attitude and a servant's heart. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. To learn more about our church, please visit stbartston.org. Again, that's stbartston.org. You can also connect with St. Bartholomew's on Facebook and Instagram through the handle at St. Bart's Anglican Church. And you can connect with this podcast through at Transforming Lives Together Cast. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. God bless.